Our scripture passage this evening is Isaiah chapter 53, probably a very familiar passage to many of you. Isaiah 53 can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,145. 1,145. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And with our sermon tonight, we're also going to be looking at Lord's Day 15. can be found in the back of your Psalter hymnal on page 22. Lord's Day 15, uh, back of your Psalter hymnal on page 22. And we can read the answers together in unison. <coughs> what do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace 
righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by a civil judge, and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, this death convinces me that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was a curse by God. It's the teaching of the catechism. I want you to think with me of the worst sinner you can possibly imagine. Maybe it's a news story you saw on the news of somebody who had been a serial child abuser. Um, maybe it's a, a news story you heard of, of someone who committed multiple murders. The worst possible sinner that you can think of. You know the kind of person that I'm talking about. The kind of person that you wouldn't want around your family. The kind of person that you wouldn't want in your church. Then I want you to hold on to that. That picture in your mind, okay? And we'll get back to that later. Our theme this evening... I just dropped the cap, didn't I? Our faithful Savior, I do not know what that is, but it's not an F. Our faithful Savior suffered was judged and crucified Here's the key part. In our place. In our place. Our faithful Savior was judged or suffered, was judged and crucified in our place. And essentially what we're going to look at is three things. The purpose of his suffering. And I'm going to abbreviate. The purpose... Of his judgment and the purpose of his crucifixion. Our faithful Savior suffered, was judged, and crucified in our place. And so we're going to look at these three things the purpose of his suffering, the purpose of his judgment, and the purpose of his crucifixion. So let's look at that first part then. Suffering, or the purpose of his suffering. I don't even know where the cap went. I'm probably going to end up marking on myself if I don't have it. So, uh, 700 years before the incarnation of Christ, Isaiah the prophet spoke of the coming suffering servant. This prophecy has often been used to prove the way in which our Lord and Savior would die. But something that the catechism keys us into 
is that Isaiah 53 speaks to more than simply the cross, but to the fact that the Messiah's entire life would be marked by suffering, would be characterized by suffering. What do you understand by the word suffer, the catechism says? That during his whole life, but especially at the end, that during his whole life, but especially at the end, the catechism is teaching us what the Bible puts forth, the undeniable fact that all of what is often called the humiliation of Christ, that all the humiliation of Christ is part of Christ's suffering. It's to be understood by the word suffered when we confess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. This is what the prophet says to us in verses 2 and 3 where we see described for us the veiling of Christ's glory and of the rich becoming poor. Look what it says here. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. No beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing is in appearance that we should desire him. Despised, rejected, man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He was despised and we esteemed him not. To know this, though, should be a comfort to the people of God who continue to suffer in this fallen and sin-stricken world. To know that our God in Christ has himself entered into that suffering. You see, part of Christ's purpose in suffering is that he would be made like his brother's in every way, except without sin. The writer to the Hebrews even says, this was necessary so that the founder of our salvation may be made perfect through suffering. Now, what exactly was this perfecting? Well, Hebrews 2, verse 17 and 18 tell us. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Congregation, you have a a sympathetic high priest. I mean, are you in the midst of, of great hardship? Have you received an unwanted diagnosis from the doctor? Have you once again fallen into financial troubles even though you told yourself you'd never end up there again? Have you fought hard against an addiction and have recently relapsed? Do you keep falling to the same sin over and over again and you wonder when you're going to be able to overcome it? Have you isolated yourself from your spouse and your children with your anger and with your outbursts? You have a sympathetic high priest. He has suffered like you. He has experienced life in this fallen and sin-stricken world, and he understands. And so my encouragement to you is to go to him in faith, and you shall receive comfort from him. You shall receive comfort from him. He will receive you and comfort you. But that's just one part of the purpose of Christ's suffering, you see? Because even though it's a great comfort to know that we have a Savior that has suffered with us, by itself... A Savior that has suffered with us would only bring us despair. You see, it's not enough to have a Savior that suffered with us. We need a Savior who has suffered for us. 
We need a Savior who suffered in our place. The incarnation, Christ's childhood years, his young adult life that we don't know much about from the New Testament. And from the beginning of his earthly ministry to his death on the cross, all of it was a sustaining in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. The purpose of his suffering, his being made perfect through suffering, as the writer to the Hebrews said, was not only so that he may be a sympathetic high priest, but to make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. The Catechism tells us that by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation. And Isaiah tells us this clearly, showing that there's a positive result from the suffering of the suffering servant. That the suffering of the Messiah is substitutionary in nature. That he was our substitute, that he took our place, and that an exchange occurs. And that he will see the fruit of his labors. It's one of the most bizarre things to read. And to read here in this prophecy. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Then to continue to read and say. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. And prolong his days. What's being said here? He's made many to be accounted righteous. He has bared their iniquities. He bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for transgressors. You see, Christ is not only our faithful high priest. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. So the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself and for the people. But Christ himself is our once-for-all atoning sacrifice. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put, us, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us. This great exchange of Christ taking our place in his suffering is more than just the removing of the guilt of our sin. It is that Christ gets our sin... He gets this, and we get his righteousness. This is a positive righteousness. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. The purpose of Christ's suffering is not only that he may be a sympathetic high priest, it's not only that he may remove the guilt of our sin by the sacrifice of himself, but also, as the catechism tells us, gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. And that means something. Because when we limit the conversation of the sacrificial atoning work of Christ only to the taking away of our sins, then we don't lose justification, but we lose sanctification. Justification is that we are made right with God. We are made in right standing with God. Sanctification is the fact that that atoning work of Christ, his positive righteousness, his positive suffering was, is applied to us in the growing of godliness and holiness. That's why I can 
stand up here and speak to you as a people of God and call you to holiness, to righteousness, to growing in godliness and not be a legalist. Why? Because Christ has died for that. He's purchased that. So that's the purpose of his suffering. Let's look at the purpose of his judgment. I don't know. Yeah, I just spelled it right. I always second guess myself. The next question in the catechism asks us what exactly we confess when we say the words under Pontius Pilate in the Apostles' Creed. Why did Christ have to suffer under Pontius Pilate? Now, although this was often used in the first century as a way of referencing a period of time, sort of as a historical fact checker, as in you will need to know the historical fact that Christ died under Pontius Pilate. But the catechism writer points to something deeper in these words. And they do this particularly in reference to Pilate's position as judge. He is a civil official or what some would call a civil magistrate. Pilate is a judge, a civil official of the Roman government. The apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome who were very likely experiencing persecution at the time. And he told them these words. There's no governing authority except from God. And those governing authorities that do exist have been instituted by God. And this is a transcendent truth of our sovereign God. And therefore is also true of Pontius Pilate. That is to say, Pontius Pilate is judge because God made him judge. Pontius Pilate is judged because God made him judge. And Christ himself said as much when he was before Pilate in John chapter 19. Pilate was talking to him and said, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You see, Christ knew ultimately where his judgment was coming from. His earthly judgment was a picture of his heavenly judgment. Christ's earthly judgment at the hands of Pilate is a picture of the heavenly judgment of his father. This is why in the Gospel of John, we see that John, the apostle, adds a detail not seen in the other Gospel accounts. He shows us that Pilate sat on his judgment seat to proclaim his condemnation of Christ as an official of the Roman government. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus. So as much as Pilate wanted to wash his hands of this situation, he was functioning as an official civil 
uh, ruler of the Roman government. And the Jews said, we don't have the authority. You have the sword. We don't have the authority to condemn him to death. You must do it. So he did it. But here is Christ remaining silent as to the accusations being brought against him. Here is Christ submitting himself to the judgment of an earthly judge because he knows that truly this judgment is from his heavenly Father. Consider the words in Isaiah's prophecy. He was oppressed, afflicted. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by a civil judge and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. It was necessary that Christ receive the verdict of an earthly judge so that we, as the people of God, may be comforted in knowing that as surely as Christ was condemned by Pilate, he was condemned by our Heavenly Father. The purpose of Christ's judgment is so that we may know that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's none, no condemnation. No judgment is what that means. No judgment for those who are in Christ. Why? Because I wait as judge from heaven, the very same person who before submitted himself to the judgment of God in my place for my sake. And the application here, people, is it's profound. You not only can be comforted, but you have a weapon in the battle against the world, the flesh, the devil. Martin Luther once said, When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ. Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Christ was innocent, but he was judged. We are guilty, but we are free. We're set free. Christ took our place. We're Barabbas, you could even say. So when your flesh rears its ugly head, when the world surrounds you with temptations, and when you stumble and fall and the accusations and condemnations of Satan come your way, you have the confidence and assurance of a suffering Savior who has been judged in your place. God has judged Christ Jesus in our place. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies Let's look then at the purpose of his crucifixion, finally. Of 
Question 39 brings before us something that many may never have thought of. Isn't it important that Christ died on a cross? Could he not have died on a sickbed? Could he not have died from the lashings he received? Why the cross? Why did it have to be the cross? Is really the question at hand here. Isaiah uses these crucifixion words that begin to reveal the kind of death Christ would undergo. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds we are healed. These point us to the crucifixion of Christ. Yes, Christ had to die, but did the Lord have to crush him on the cross? It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The answer given to us in the catechism begins to key us into not only the purpose of our Savior's death by crucifixion, but also as to the nature and character of all of Christ's suffering and judgment. Answer 39 says, yes, this death convinces me that he shouldered the curse. The curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was cursed by God. Now the concept of, of blessing and curse is often unfamiliar to our modern minds, but it's something that permeates the pages of Scripture. It's something that speaks to the character and nature of our covenant God. There are covenant curses and there are covenant blessings. The blessing of Eden in a place which they could have fellowship with God. The curse of Genesis 3. God's unconditional covenant of grace established with Abram. To whom he said, I will bless those who bless you. And curse those who curse you. The promise of a people and a land. The giving of the law. And the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28 given to Israel before they entered the promised land to possess it. God said to them, if you keep my commandments and walk in my ways, you will be blessed. This will be the land of milk and honey. This will be a, a, a new Eden. But God said, if you don't keep my commands and you turn away from me and you worship other gods and you begin to commit all kinds of heinous sins, these are the curses that will come upon you. You will be you, your dead will litter the ground and be eaten by birds. This is very vivid language, okay? And that curse came to its fruition in the expulsion of the people of God from the promised land and their exile. But did it really come to its fulfillment in that? You see, these things give us a framework of the way our holy and just God has worked in redemption. Blessing on one side, curse on the other. Blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience. And we as humanity are on the receiving end of curse. This curse has fallen on mankind through the disobedience of our first parents. This very same curse came alive and more visible to us. In the pages of Scripture, when we read the consequences laid out to God, or by God, to Israel, if they disobeyed His law in the land, God promised to bless Israel, but only if they obeyed 
If they disobeyed, the penalties, the curse of the law would come down upon them. Their enemies would destroy them. The lamb would spit them out. So why then did Christ have to be crucified? Why did Christ have to be crucified? Because Christ had to be cursed in our place. See, part of those Deuteronomy 28 cursings was that cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. This is exactly what the catechism is teaching us. And the catechism learned it from Paul who said this in Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not obey, abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. That's the curse we're under. The curse of being holden to, to obey the law, which we cannot do. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Why? Because we were cursed, because we were under uh, obligation to the obedience of the law, and we could not keep the law. So because we did not keep the law, we were cursed. Christ was cursed in our place. Now, where should this hit us? What does it mean that Christ was cursed by God? Maybe we don't really fully understand the weight of that. Maybe it sounds like Harry Potter to us, a curse, right? I believe R.C. Sproul can help us here. He preached a message entitled, The Curse Motif of the Atonement. And he used an illustration to get his point across that's deeply impactful. You see, many of us are probably familiar with the priestly blessing of number six. The pastor often uses it as the parting blessing in the order of worship. It's a declaration of the grace of God going with the people of God as they live out their Christian lives in the sin-stricken world. This is the blessing that the Lord Yahweh told Moses to share with Aaron, saying, Speak to Aaron and the sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And God said, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. But R.C. Sproul, wanting his audience to understand the weight of the curse which fell upon Christ on the cross, inverted this familiar blessing into a curse, a benediction into a malediction. And let me say this for you so you can understand the words, the weight of what's being uh, said here, what's going on with Christ on the cross. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you 
and remove his peace from you forever. I mean, don't you hear that? You feel the weight of that. And to know that the curse Christ took upon himself through his whole life, but especially on the cross, was not just any curse. It was the curse of Genesis 3. It was the curse of Deuteronomy 28. It was the curse of the law, the curse of sin, and impending punishment for our disobedience. It was a mere mystery to hear the words Christ said from himself on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God cannot look upon sin, and in that moment Christ became sin. Christ was a curse. And do you understand that the curse which lay on Christ was the curse which lay on me. It is profound. You see, the purpose of the crucifixion is so that we may be assured that Christ was cursed by God in our place so that we may be blessed by God. Now, I want you to think back. I told you to imagine for me the worst possible sinner you could think of. And then I want to tell you that that sinner that you thought of is not imaginary at all. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, said these words. All the prophets of old said that Christ should be the greatest transgressor. Murderer, adulterer, thief, blasphemer that ever was or ever could be on earth. What is Martin Luther saying there? He's saying that he who knew no sin became sin. He who perfectly obeyed God was cursed, became a curse for us. Not that Christ himself committed those sins, but that God chose to judge Christ, to have Christ suffer, to, Christ, to have Christ be accursed in our place. Martin Luther goes on. When he took the sins of the whole world upon himself, Christ was no longer an innocent person, but a sinner. Our merciful Father in heaven saw how the law oppressed us and how impossible it was for us to get out from under the curse of the law. He therefore sent his only son into the world and he said to him, You are now Peter, the liar, Paul, the persecutor, David, the adulterer, Adam, the disobedient, the thief on the cross. You, my son, must pay the world's iniquity. And the law growls. All right, if your son has taken the sin of the world, I see no sins anywhere else but in him. He shall die on the cross. And the law kills Christ, but we go free. And so when we hear that Christ was made a curse for us, let us believe it with joy and assurance. By faith, Christ changes places with us. He gets our sins, and we get his holiness. Our faithful Savior suffered, was judged, and crucified in our place. 
that we may know God's grace, righteousness, and have eternal life. Amen. We pray with me. Father, thank you for this word of hope. May we consider the suffering of our Savior and not lose heart. Knowing that in Christ we are hidden. Therefore, we all who have faith in Christ can say, We have been crucified with Him, and buried with Him, and raised with Him. That we can be assured that Christ has suffered, was judged, and cursed by you in our place. And maybe, may this be something that causes us to strive for godliness and holiness. Knowing that we have been freed from the condemnation of sin. We're no longer under law, but grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.